Microphone check. One, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check. Good. Sounds good. One, two, three. Rolling and. We are really privileged or thrilled because with our nomination for AAC, it is the first time that American Society of Cinematographers opens uh, the category for documentary filmmakings, which which gives new hope for uh, cinematographers. When we use the, the last percentage of the battery, we, we just pack and go and, and get back in, in Skopje. Just for uh, three days, we spent a lot of time in, in driving just to pick up and to, to start the shooting. I mean, to, to settle down in the village, you know, so all the supplies and equipment. So it was very difficult. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life. This is a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I'm your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 138. And it is brought to you by Musicvine, creators of the most original, easy-to-use music licensing platform for you, the independent documentary filmmaker. By now, I imagine most of you have seen the extraordinary documentary film Honeyland, which is about the last female bee hunter in Europe who must save the bees and return the natural balance when a family of nomadic beekeepers invade her land and threaten her livelihood. If you haven't yet seen it, I think that you should probably stop listening to this episode right now and go watch it before returning to this episode. And I am only half kidding. Honeyland has been nominated and won awards all over the globe. It is the first film to ever be nominated for the Academy Awards for both documentary feature and international feature. It was the winner at the National Film Society of Film Critics Awards USA. At Sundance, they brought in two more awards, one for cinematography in World Cinema Documentary, as well as the Grand Jury Prize in World Cinema Documentary. It was also nominated for Best Feature and won the Best Cinematography at IDA's annual awards. But there are some in industry circles that are saying one of the most impressive of the multitude of nominations and awards garnered by Honeyland is the one that was given out by the American Society of Cinematographers for Outstanding Achievement in Nonfiction Filmmaking. An award like this speaks directly to the cinematography of a documentary like Honeyland. And while it's thankfully being recognized more nowadays, there was a time not so long ago that documentary cinematography was kind of disregarded or thought of as the stepsister of narrative features cinematography. That by default, to shoot a documentary somehow inherently meant either handheld shaky point-and-shoot verite or boring long static shots on a set of sticks. But Males' brothers and Michael Moore films aside, it was probably a not entirely fair assessment to have been making on the good cinematographers of our craft. Which is what made Honeyland's ASC award such a satisfying victory for so many cinematographers who have long been making incredible images but not getting the recognition that they have long deserved. And we're going to speak directly to the cinematographers of Honeyland, Femi Doubt and Samir Luma, in our next segment. But before we do that, I'd like to take a closer look at what makes a good DP and where we might find them. Now, you might be saying, Chris, I am a documentary filmmaker. I am the DP and the director, producer, and editor, which, of course, I totally get. That's probably a true scenario for many of us documentary filmmakers, although certainly not all. 
It might be the case that you are the director and your collaborator is the DP or the DOP, as they might say in the UK, or you hire out your DP, or if you're like me, you're a director DP who sometimes plays one role while working with someone else who is doing the other role. Either way, a good understanding of what to look for in a DP and how to perhaps find one is an appropriate one to be discussing in today's episode. Now, one of the first things that I think about when starting out on a documentary project is what the overall look and feel for the film will be. Obviously, the images are a critical component to that look and feel, right? And so I need to think about how I or someone else will be shooting the film and to a maybe slightly lesser degree, what we'll be shooting with. Sometimes I'll even use multiple people on the same project, which by the way is what Honeyland did. For instance, on one project, Steph and I hired a DP to specifically shoot the interviews on our documentary. This particular DP was incredibly skilled at making mesmerizing looking interviews, oftentimes with a minimal amount of lighting equipment, which as you might imagine can come in pretty handy when shooting overseas in developing countries. I mean, this person could make a stunning looking interview in a tiny space with only a reflector, a couple of pillowcases, and two LED panels at his disposal. Like, I'm talking that level of minimalist. And for the more verite type stuff, which wasn't necessarily this person's forte, I picked up the camera and shot. If there's one thing that I excel at as a shooter, it's following action. I can quickly pick up a camera and engage directly with a scene in a way that puts a subject directly in their environment or situation. With a camera, I am often using my director's storytelling sense alongside my editor's brain. Now, while I've learned to light and set up my interviews fairly adequately, it will most likely never be my strong suit. The point here is to utilize the strengths of certain DPs and shooters. And so one DP might not be the right person for one project, but a perfect match for another. A DP who specializes in sports photography might not be the best person to shoot your observational dock in Macedonia. Of course, if you are not the person who is shooting your documentary, you are probably going to have to pay the person who will be, and you'll need a budget for this. I get asked all of the time what a fair price to pay a DP is, but that's a pretty complicated question to answer, because there really isn't a simple one. It's not like the commercials or narrative features world where there are standard industry rates, where on a 10-hour day a DP or a camera person makes a certain rate, and after 10 hours it goes to time and a half, after 12 maybe double rate. Unless you are working on a significantly budgeted film for HBO documentaries, you're not generally working on any sort of standard rates in documentary. In fact, many DPs working in the commercial world who are hired to work on a documentary are often taking a significant pay cut. And so where a DP might make, say, $1,500 a day on a commercial gig, on a documentary, he or she might be making half or even less that day rate. And often on documentaries, it's not unusual at all for a DP to be working on a project rate instead of a day rate. That is, they're shooting a project for one lump sum of money as opposed to a day or weekly rate. Now, I have hired people out in both capacities. I have sometimes hired someone to work a set number of weeks on a documentary and paid them an agreed upon amount. Other times, when I don't know the number of days that I might need on a project, I'll negotiate a day rate with the DP. Now, a quick note here, if you are negotiating a package deal, make sure that it includes camera and or lighting gear. Otherwise, you'll have to pay for this separately if you don't own the necessary gear yourself. 
When I am hired to shoot on a commercial or corporate gig, I'm often hired to use my camera, lenses, and some lighting. My day rate, and then on top of this, my kit rental. So say my rate is 1000 to 1300 a day, my kit rental is an additional three or 400 a day on top of this. Now, my documentary rate is often considerably less than this, and my rate is inclusive of my gear. It's not separated out. Sometimes I'm working on a lump sum for a project, but generally I'm on a day rate, even on documentary gigs. One more thing to note here, if you are shooting your own documentary, it's important to remember that your time is worth money. That is, you should be paying yourself. So make sure that on any of your budgets, you are including your rates in that budget. Now, if you'll be hiring out your DP, another important consideration is the personality and work ethic of the DP that you'll be working with. Sure, their IMDP might be impressive, but are they someone that you're going to be able to spend days and nights with? Do they travel well? Is this someone that you know, or someone that you've worked with before, or someone that has worked for someone else that you know? Do they have solid references? If you don't know this person, it's a good idea not only to look at their overall body of work, but also to try and find out a little bit about who they are and what they might be like to work with. Meet up with this person if they're in your town or have a Zoom call with them. But also speak directly with other directors that they have worked with in the past. This should give you at least some cursory idea of what it might be like working with them. Getting the right DP for your project is a delicate balance of finding the right person for the overall look of your film, the right personality to work alongside, and then of course the type of budget that you will be operating with. How about you, Doc Lifer? What are you looking for in a DP? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, and I'm sure others would as well. And a great way to do this is to join me over to the D Word, where I currently host one of their topic forums, the Documentary Life Podcast Forum. It's a great way to continue on with conversations that we've only just begun here on the program. So get your voice heard and pick up some tips and suggestions from other doc filmmakers by heading over to d-word.com. All right, let's get to talking with those two DPs of the wonderful documentary that turned heads in 2019, Honeyland. My conversation with Femi Doubt and Samir Luma is just around the corner here on The Documentary Life. Before we get to our conversation with the cinematographers of Honeyland, I wanted to let you know that the conversation we had ended up going over an hour and a half. It was such a joy talking to these two filmmakers. And I didn't want to cut it short because I knew that what they had to say about cinematography and documentary filmmaking was going to be really helpful to you. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to air the whole thing on today's show. So instead, I've created a free download of the second part of the conversation. So if you're interested in hearing part two of my conversation with the cinematographers of Honeyland, and I do think that after part one, you certainly will be, simply go to thedocumentarylife.com slash Honeyland and take a listen. It's our way of showing gratitude to both Femi and Samir, as well as you, Doc Lifer. So enjoy our conversation and remember to pick up part two of it afterwards by going to thedocumentarylife.com slash Honeyland.
I want to take a moment to tell you about a music licensing platform called Music Vine. Here on the show, we often talk about the importance of good music. You know I'm a stickler for capturing the best audio possible, as it has the power to amplify your visuals and can move your audience to spectacular places. Music can seriously make or break a film. There's nothing worse than seeing great video being ruined by the same old cliche sounds that everyone has heard a zillion times. But when music is done well, it can transform the entire landscape of your film. Of course, a good soundtrack is not easy to come by. Every film, every scene, it's different, right? That's why a music licensing platform like Musicvine is so great. We've mentioned them on the show before. They're a music licensing company that I use for both commercial and documentary projects. And you will have heard me using music from Musicvine a number of times during season two of the show, as well as today's episode. So why do I use Musicvine? Their website looks great, and above all, it's simple and straightforward to use. They've made it really easy and intuitive to search their extensive music library, a library that, unlike most other music services I've come across, is actually original and fresh. They even have these really cool hand-picked playlists covering all sorts of filmmaking genres, including a collection specifically made for, yep, you guessed it, documentary. And recently, they've made Musicvine even better by introducing a brand new subscription for filmmakers. Their pro subscription starts from just $19.99 a month. You get total access to their excellent catalog of music. Plus, you can license as much music as you like during the subscription. As if that wasn't enough, they're also offering an exclusive discount to listeners of The Documentary Life. Use the promo code DOCLIFE15, all lowercase, DOCLIFE15, and you can get 15% off any Musicvine subscription. And this offer will remain valid through the end of this year, 2020. To check out their documentary playlist, as well as their entire catalog of original film music, head on over to musicvine.com. And don't forget to use the promo code DOCLIFE15 to get 15% off any Musicvine subscription. It's time your doc films sounded as good as they look, DocLifer. Go to musicvine.com today. I'm excited to be speaking with Femi Dowd and Samuel Yuma. They are both the cinematographers of the award-winning Honeyland documentary, which so many of us have been talking about. Just to give you some idea of the awards that Honeyland has incurred, they have received the Outstanding Achievement in Cinematography in Nonfiction Filmmaking from the American Society of Cinematographers. They also received Best Cinematography Award at IDA, Cinematography Grand Jury Prize, Special Jury Prize for World Cinema Documentary at Sundance Film Festival, and of course, very recently, and of course, nominated for not one but two awards at this year's Academy Awards, one for Best Documentary and the other for Best Foreign Language Film. Femi and Samir, it is an absolute pleasure. Welcome to The Documentary Life. Glad to have you joining us from Macedonia today. Yeah, thank you for you invite us. We are so glad to be also part of uh, this podcast. Show. Yeah, yeah, podcast. Yeah. Thanks, Chris, for inviting us. Looking forward to this. Absolutely. I'll bet it's been a pretty crazy time for you guys. I mean, at the time of this recording, now we're only 
um, a couple of weeks removed from the Academy Awards, and I know that you've only recently flown back to Macedonia. What has it been like for you uh, the past few weeks, and then what's it like returning to Macedonia now uh, with so many accolades attached to your name with this wonderful documentary, Honeyland? I mean, it's, it's a it's a big uh, it's a big and heavy uh, weight, I will say. Uh, Femi, my colleague, yeah. he arrived a little bit earlier when everybody were uh, ex- so excited, much excited, yeah, yeah mm. about uh, everything. I, I, we still, uh, uh, how to say, feel the the excitement from the our audience. Yeah, they were waiting to 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 come back from LA. Mm. And, Finally, when we got back here, we had a, one small uh, uh, ceremony here. This uh, award that we have some in the local in in Skopje. Yeah. And we went there, so it was outstanding. Like uh, I don't know, like three, three minutes, four minutes applause for the for the crew. So yeah, standing ovations yeah. wow. for the crew. Uh, so this was the the thing that actually everybody just wanted to. To give us this uh, this kind of uh, regards. What is the difference in feeling recognized by your peers in filmmaking versus being recognized by by your friends and family and by your nation? What's what's kind of the difference there for you guys? I mean, um, of course, there is a big difference. Yeah. Uh, what for us as a filmmakers, as cinematographers, uh, really the recognitions that we received from um, the world famous cinematographers uh, who are members of American Cinematography Society. Yeah. From the grand jury, um, which everything started on Sundance year ago, mm. from the IDA, International Documentary Association, and now the nomination that uh, uh, we are getting, and the moment when we are recording this podcast, uh, we still don't know whether uh, when you will hear this podcast, so whether we are winners or not. <laughs> uh, so basically from Imago. from Imago, from the International uh, Association of Cinematographers, yeah. it's yeah. really uh, what matters the most. Because um, um, having in mind that we are coming uh, from the place where we cannot consider that there is a huge um, film industry. Mm-hmm. We cannot call it industry because during the year uh, there are you know, like three to five, five. Yeah. Uh, movies, uh, probably one or two documentaries, yeah. or maybe not. Yeah. So, you know, it's very weak uh, uh, production-wise. So uh, one this kind of achievement, it's not only significant for us as a cinematographers, in a, but also for the country. Mm. Because, for example, the last time when we had... Uh, nomination with a fiction uh, movie was 25 years ago wow. uh, in the foreign language category. Yeah. So I hope that we will not wait 25 more years <laughs> for someone else uh, to get uh, this, uh, um, you know, to, to produce something which will be recognized worldwide. Yeah, and, <laughs> exactly. Also, I can add, add uh, just that uh, this is the, especially for us as a cinematographers, it's uh, very unique. I mean, even from our country, nobody till now had this kind of uh, achievement. Yeah. So I can say not just 25 years ago that we got this nomination about uh, future film, but all this award that we are recognized by ASC and by Sundance and so on. So 
they are so unique and historically for our country. Mm, mm, incredible. That, that, that is giving something like more value or how to say... Yeah. I mean, also, it's very good to point out that um, we are really um, uh, privileged or thrilled. I don't know how which word to use because... Mm. Uh, with our nomination for AAC, it is the first time that American cinematographer, Society of Cinematographers opens uh, the category for documentary filmmakings, which which gives um, new um, hope, and, hope yeah. for uh, cinematographers, yeah. exactly non-fiction filmmaking, that uh, somehow the uh, craftsmanship, the, the visual... Uh, approach uh, has been recognized by the masters of cinematography uh, uh, who actually nominated us and they decided this year for the first time to have a um, uh, award for the documentary. That's right. And I'm glad that you brought that up. It's it's really important to mention that. On one hand, I'm sorry that it's taken this long, right, for the, the ASC to recognize uh, nonfiction filmmaking and documentary. Uh, but I'm also extremely elated that they have done that. And uh, you guys, there couldn't be a better first award than for you guys. Yeah, maybe they waited us uh, for this film, so... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no. They were waiting for the best. <laughs> yeah, a big reason that I, of course, we've had you on the show today and something that I'm extremely excited about is we haven't really dedicated, surprisingly enough, here we are 125 episodes in, and surprisingly, we haven't really had a show that was completely dedicated to cinematography. And and that's such a, a big reason, obviously, that I've had the both of you on. And so with that being said, with a, with a, with a film like Honeyland, how were you guys first approached to work on this film? And what is it like working on a film together, both as cinematographers? I mean, uh, I'm so glad to hear that uh, we can uh, say that uh, this is another uh, first time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So documentary cinematography on your podcast, uh, which is (laughs) good to hear this. (laughs) Well, Everybody are asking, you know, how come two cinematographers? Is this possible? Yeah. Um, uh, the crew that was working on uh, Honeyland, the two directors and yeah. both of us, we were yeah. working before on another documentary uh, called Lake of Apples. Mm. And uh, we were limited with the time because we were commissioned. So we didn't have so much resources. So we were commissioned in certain amount of uh, time, which was very short, to deliver the product, the video documentary about nature conservation of one lake. Mm. So that's why the producer, which is the director, uh, decided to uh, get on board uh, one more director and two cinematographers. I see. And we saw that actually we functioned. Uh, Everything goes so smooth uh, and very productive that when we got commissioned for in the beginning, the video we supposed to produce uh, about nature conservation. Uh, we had three months, so we decided, okay, yeah, we, we continue again, four of us, to make this video. Just to finish, uh, somehow. And we didn't have uh, in mind that it will take us two years. <laughs> right. Because in the in the beginning, it was idea to to make a one, how to say, short video yeah. about the, this nature conservation program. Yes. 
But when we discovered, I mean, and when then the second family appears, this was the thing that we started to 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 think about to how to say to connect them to our story. Yeah. So we we spent a more time to to get in contact with them because it's, it, it was very difficult. They are not knowing us, so our introduction it was a little bit uh, slowly. But in the end, they they agreed that. Uh, they will accept like to be a part of the, of the, our project, and that's how we started to 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 work with them slowly. But you know, it's, it it was very from our side very careful just to to not make some kind of mistakes and just to follow them how they are living, what are their uh, uh, how to say daily a routine routine and yeah. so on. So, yeah, but um, it's very interesting that. Um, in the beginning, um, since uh, the idea was completely different, uh, we as a cinematographers, we decided to uh, put um, a bigger production value, let's say. Mm. Uh, so in the beginning, because we had only Atija, our main yeah. character, and yeah. the focus on keeping, without knowing what will come out next, uh, we were, we were uh, uh, visually completely different. Like, we used a lot of drones. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Gimbal shots, so it will be very steady, following her activity. We were looking for nice uh, frame shots as well. You know, like, this is uh, something that uh, naturally comes, you know, we don't discuss, yeah, yeah. but somehow... We have that eye, uh, um, both of us, uh, having in mind his uh, experience, like Femi has uh, more than 20 years yeah. of experience yeah. in uh, filmmaking. I was before uh, more concentrated on photography. Mm. And um, yeah, and then somehow we started like that. But when the story developed, we then discussed, oh my God, you know, like we have something yeah. more different type of storytelling. It's not anymore this uh, commercial way of approach where we follow with the drone, you know, like beauty shots. Uh. Yeah, we wanted to, to, to keep the, the story. I mean, that was the important thing for us. Because when we are getting a lot, I mean, we had some kind of equipment, so we yeah. just wanted to try to, to use them. But we yeah. decided and we discovered that this will be look like, how to say, maybe... Those National Geography or BBC channel, ah. this it could be in going in other direction. So yeah. that's why we decided just to keep it simple. I mean, just to to tell the story, to not make so kind of uh, how to say uh, complicating stuff. So mm. it was like, okay, if we do it like with the drone, it will be. Uh, there must be a reason to make a, a drone a drone shot. So not just represent uh, the place. I mean, the place is very beautiful and, and so so unique. But you have to you must to have some kind of reason just to shoot with that kind of equipment. And we decided, okay, we are not doing anymore this kind of uh, short documentary or corporate video. So we wow. changed the uh, the, style the, the style completely. Wow. And so. We, yeah, and we didn't didn't have uh, too much uh, choices actually. We didn't have uh, electricity in the village, mm. so we we were very very limited about uh, using using of the equipment because we didn't have too much batteries, just five or six battery for both cameras. Mm. 
And this was the reason that, okay, we have just those equipment, so we, we must, how to say... Uh, Use it properly. Properly, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll be very efficient with that with that power. Real quick, did you um were you guys using solar power to uh to power up no. the the batteries or how were you recharging? Actually, <laughs> we we buy uh, one small Jenny generator. Uh Jenny, of course. The two or three months of using, I mean, uh, two or three? It, no, it was less. It was no, it was there yeah. in the in the in the month in the like village, but it broke very fast. Very fast, yeah. But also was not very useful to have a generator there because no. uh, then you have this sound, sound, uh, which, <laughs> uh, which then uh, how you gonna say yeah. uh, there is no electricity in the village uh, and there is some sound which right give you where's the, that sound the, coming from? What's that about? <laughs> I will go back uh, a little bit to the moment when we switched, when we started filming the mother, please, and her interaction with the mother in yeah. the in the head. Yeah. Uh, when we saw that there is a bigger potential, that this will not be definitely short video, that we're gonna go further until we have a uh, big uh, um, material for something bigger. Mm. Uh, we still didn't know what will be, to be honest. But we changed the style. And uh, everything till that moment, which was like the first three months, a yeah. little bit maybe more, I don't recall exactly, mm. um, was used as a case study, you know. So we have enough time to be familiar with uh, the place, yeah. with their routine, what they're doing, their interaction. Mm. And then we knew exactly what we want to film till the family appeared. Yeah. <laughs> well. And then... Uh, uh, yeah, and, and went in another direction. At that moment, it was really good that we were two cinematographers. Yeah, of course. That's, I definitely thought that occurred to me pretty early on. You know, like two uh, uh, cinematographers with two directors, we could easily split. Yeah, and we can because we were limited of uh, uh, shooting days, like two to three days, because of uh, limited uh, limited uh, memory cards and limited yeah. uh, batteries for the mm. camera. Mm. Were so, you going back into town to recharge and to offload offload footage? How were you recharging at that point when the Jenny stopped working? We didn't. We, no, we, we didn't. We had just those those batteries. That was the when we used the the last percentage of the battery. We, we just uh, packed and go packed and, and get back in in Skopje. And how long would it take you to get back to Skopje? Around around two hours by car. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, two, and a half. two and a half hours by car. This is brilliant. But it was problematic uh, because uh, the terrain is not so. Yeah, and we have to go <laughs> twice. Because uh, in the in the in the small jeep that we had, four by four vehicle, uh, it can accommodate just two people and equipment. <laughs> or four people without, without equipment. equipment. So. so Feko will yeah. Feko and uh, Lubomir will drive. Uh, Femi and Lubomir will drive uh, early, early morning. Yeah, yeah. And then me and Tamara will drive with my car to the closest village where we can go with the light cars. So I will <laughs> get back to them. I mean, <laughs> so, just to pick them and get back to Bekila. And that is just for three days. Yeah. We spent a lot of time in, in driving just to pick up and to to start the shooting. I mean, yeah. to to settle down in the village. You know, so. <laughs> All the supplies and equipment, so it was very difficult. But brilliant nonetheless. <laughs> I love this. I don't think that it should be understated, the power of the decisions that you and the directors made here. Uh, 
in terms of aesthetics, going from shooting a somewhat stylized, somewhat more produced uh, film and having this other family arrive uh, and, and, and then deciding to change the way in which you shoot the film, um, it cannot be understated the power of that because it is absolutely felt the second that family arrives, the pacing picks up, the erratic nature in some ways and the way that things are happening. You know, her world and yeah. to see how her Hatije's world is completely shifted upon the arrival of this family um, and her work is completely disrupted. That is felt so much in what happens in the way that you guys are filming. And so I again, I, I don't think it can be understated because I think a lot of maybe less seasoned or even even veterans might have continued shooting with drones and continued shooting with gimbals and not made that shift. And you clearly made the perfect choice for the way in which to tell this story. And um, I can't say enough about that decision. Uh, and I assume that was a, a collaboration between you and, and the directors. It is precisely that moment in doc filmmaking where the story tells you in which way it should be told and and you guys followed that and and it's beautiful yeah, it, was, it was it was natural yeah. uh, somehow because the 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 peace and um, this tranquility that uh, atije uh, in her daily life had in this abandoned village yeah. in the relation with her mother there was no way you should um, use handheld because yeah. Uh, you know, um, we knew exactly. The mother was never never left this uh, small house. Mm -hmm. um, we had only one position. Eventually, second position, which was very hard uh, in the get, winter yeah, to yeah. get because it was right next to um, the stove. The stove. Uh -huh. uh, so um, basically, you know exactly what kind of shots you are able to to, to, to get there. Uh, so there was very rare time when um, uh, um, we were uh, forced to get the camera off the tripod yeah because there was no way to lose the time because uh, we never interrupted or we never uh, tried to uh, impose to our uh, characters what to do uh, so you know like you don't have time for instance, when uh, Atije is uh, putting uh, uh, medicine on the face of her mother, but yeah. this tiny little space. No, you just grab the camera and try to be yeah, still yeah. as possible. Right. Uh, um, but in contra with the family, is different. You have seven kids, <laughs> which are all around the place. There is always something happening around you. They're fighting all the time with, with the father, with the mother. <laughs> yeah. With the bees. So, yeah. uh, as you can see, you could follow them from distance when they're not aware with a, with a tele lenses, yeah. or you're close by with some wider lens, uh, uh, trying to follow their their fights, their yeah. running, their whatever you know, because always there is something. Yeah. So in these cases. Uh, most of the time, we spent both of us with the family yeah. to try to capture some moments because uh, there is always something going on. Yeah, yeah, we just uh, try to observe them all the time to be some somehow like invisible eye all yeah, the like, time, you know. Mm. 
So because there, uh, in the same time there there is happening. I mean, uh, something with uh, the the small kids with the with the girl that she she was climbing on the roof. So the other kids are playing with the dust yeah. and so on. That's how we can actually split to different uh, certain situations. So yeah, I remember uh, many times we were like, uh, you know, like. Feko will yell at me, oh, give yeah, me, give yeah, me, give yeah, me yeah. the, the wide lens. So yeah, we will yeah. just, you know, throw to each other the lenses because yeah, we didn't have yeah. too many lenses. We have two, one pair of lenses uh, and one micro lenses. So three lenses yeah, in total. Yeah. You yeah. were sh- you were completely sharing lenses. You didn't have two separate well, units. No, we didn't no, have no, two no, separate. No, you were sharing no. lenses. Even better. We had 2470, 7200 hmm. and one macro that is yeah. one, uh, uh, one hundred to five. Five, yeah. Hmm. That's, that's it, you know. What cameras were you guys using? Uh, Nikon DSLR. Really? That's what you were shooting on? Yes. yes. <laughs> this, is the, this is the reaction actually that we heard uh, too many times during the, all the, these awards and uh, festivals. Yeah. With the people that we yeah. met, the professionals. And because they, they thought that maybe we are shooting on some kind of Alexa or, you know, better cameras. But when we answered to them that is Nikon DSLR, they, they were just amazed about the. I want to get a picture. I want, I want to give our listeners a picture of the dimensions of the room or the house where Hatije and her mother lived, where you guys were filming. Because I say this because it reminded me of... Uh, a lot of when I would film in Nepal, very, very smaller areas, dark areas that you'd be working in. And there just wasn't a lot of room. And so a lot of room to work in. And so I'm curious, can you give us an idea what the dimensions of that room that you were filming and what that was like? Yeah, you will apologize because we are not uh, uh, familiar with inches, but we can say in uh, centimeters. Of course. We're, we're a worldwide podcast. Okay. So it's like... Uh, Two by two, two by uh, three, two by three two meters. Two and a half, two by three meters, something yeah. like that, or maybe three and a three. But if you are getting in the mind that we had this uh, one couch that is in the front of the door, I mean uh, against the door, and the right side it was so, so small bench, place, bench, and where the, the mother stove, was living, yeah. and. Oh. And the stove, so you don't have any any possibility. I mean, you, you yeah, don't it's like have... two walls are taken away immediately. Yes, yes, yes. so yeah. this is the the room actually. And it was so dark because there is no chimney, so all the smoke is oh, inside. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that was another obstacle we had, and luckily we were two. So every time when somebody will get dizzy from the smoke, yeah. we'll we jump changing, out yeah. and uh, we'll be replaced by the other cinematographers. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have I have personally never filmed myself in Macedonia, and so I don't know generally what the light is there, what it's like. But I can say in watching this film, one of the things that was incredibly impressive and, and of course, stunningly beautiful throughout was your film looks like it's always shot during the golden hour. <laughs> and I don't know how you achieved yes, this. Talk about this. What times yeah. of day were you shooting Honeyland? I mean, um, uh, during the day, uh, we will stick in the hut when it's too hot outside yeah. or uh, with the cows, uh, with the family, or we will use, for example, we will plan, um, uh, you know, to work early morning in the summer because it's more pleasant. Otherwise, during the heat, neither the bees are uh, 
you know, uh, active. active uh, yeah. I mean, they are active, but, they are but uh, it's very, yeah, they're, it's very hard to, uh, you know, like um, to stay on that sun. It's really hot. Uh, so m most of the time we were really uh, forced to uh, shoot in the morning and right. then uh, in the afternoon we'll make a break for lunch mm. because we also we needed to cook our lunch on the open fire uh, so we can eat something and then uh, after a small break uh, we yeah. will continue and usually if it's working with bees we will follow Atija for some kind some several kilometers to the spot where we will catch the golden uh, hour to to shoot the activity. actually that was the the only time for the interiors i mean the during the day after the afternoon that is the direct sunlight in the in the window mm. or in the uh, in the door mm. so the only thing that we actually had uh, one small 50 centimeters by one meter, one uh, whiteboard. Ah. So that was the only thing that we just left it on the floor, that somehow the direct sun hits to the to the whiteboard and we get more, more details in details the wall. Ah, so you did actually have some bounce happening. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, we, we, we had. That's the, the only thing that we actually somehow can manage the, the sunlight. No, nothing, nothing more. Nothing more. Because it was very contrast, uh, and then we really, really needed a little bit more details. Right. If right. The direction is a little bit difficult because in, in front of the house there is uh, this uh, hood. Yeah. So it's it's not so possible to oh. the sound get inside to the room. So right. that's why we, we put it to the door. I mean, on the on the ground. Yeah. Bounce from outside yeah, to inside. To inside. So that's this. The, the reason how we actually managed. This was only part one of my conversation with Femi and Samir. To listen to part two, go to thedocumentarylife.com slash honeyland and download part two. And we'll see you next time, Doc Lifer. Mm -hmm.